Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we are very happy to have, for the third time on the show, Timo Andrus. Timo is a pianist, composer, and now video producer uh, <laughs> in Brooklyn. Timo, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be back. We wanted to get you on the show. Uh, last episode, we spoke with Simona Dinnerstein, who recorded a record in her Brooklyn apartment. She's not far from you. She recorded a record of Etudes by Philip Glass and Schubert's final piano sonata. She did it in her living room. She had a producer come in. This was her lockdown project. When we last spoke to you, it was just after your recital at Carnegie Hall had been canceled and you were making YouTube videos to show the entire program on the internet. And since then, Doug and I have just marveled at the progress that you have made in the technology, in the editing, in... I was jokingly saying before we started that this is a sort of Wagnerian total art thing. I don't know what the German word for it is. It is. You're not only filming music that you've composed, but you've filmed a lot of music that you've composed, music by others. You're doing the filming. You're doing the audio editing. You're doing this home production in your little COVID-safe Brooklyn house there. And it's fascinating to see what's happening. Tell us. Why Why the sudden, is it just the lockdown that gave you inspiration to do this? Well, uh, first of all, thank you. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've been keeping up with the videos and, and uh, noting the, yeah, the, the progress that I've been making on them. Um, yeah, it, it, it really was lockdown. I mean, uh, prior to the, the Carnegie videos uh, back in, which I started making back in March, um, I had really done no video at all. Um, and I think my, my YouTube channel had like one or two videos on it that were, you know, made by someone else. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the last person in the world to jump on this bandwagon. Um, but it did certainly feel like the time was right. And, um, you know, it was one of those things, uh, I, I guess I tend to be a little bit of a, a, like an obsessive personality. Like I get into something, I really get into it. Like I, I tend to sort of go deep. Um, and so, yeah, it really became just kind of a slippery slope. I mean, I, I, um, I made those Carnegie videos, which was, you know, a complete recital program, maybe, you know, 90 minutes of music. Um, and, I, f I found the whole process really engaging and, and really rewarding. I was, uh, you know, I was happy to have that stuff out in the world and it seemed to get a good response. Um, and as, as lockdown um, dragged on and continues to drag on, uh, you know, at least as regards public concertizing, it seemed to me like uh, you know, this is something I might really want to get better at sooner rather than later. And um, in ter just in terms of uh, sort of being a YouTube hobbyist, you know, growing my, my channel and, and sort of um, just making it clear to the online world, like what, what exactly is 
what exactly is it that I do as a musician? Because it's always a little bit hard to describe to people. Why is that? Well, because... I, I guess, do you call yourself a classical musician and composer? I guess as a musician, you play classical music, but what do you say for the music you compose? It's not really classical. Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, uh, I do say classical musician just because it's sort of shorthand uh, it, that most people will recognize. And most people don't know that the specific meaning of classical is like Mozart and Haydn. Um, so well, they'll, most they'll, people would think that the specific meaning of classical is dead people. <laughs> that's also true. Um, and so I usually need to elaborate to say, oh, you know, I also write music and I, you know, I play music by living composers. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. It, like, I mean, the... <laughs> I feel like the the classic situation where I'm explaining this is um, uh, on my way to the airport uh, to a cab driver, um, <laughs> which I always, always seems to to happen. I always seem to get into this conversation. It's like, oh, where, like where are you flying? You know, what what do you do? My wife always says you've got to have a, a what is it a matchbook explanation of what you do ready at any time. She's a landscape architect, and a lot of people think that what she does is, you know, tell people where to put their rose bushes, when in actuality, what she does is a bit more complicated than that and is, you know, related to construction and contractors and city ordinances and things like that. And she's she tries to have a a, a short explanation. The, right, you gotta you gotta have the yes. uh, the the elevator pitch. Yes, the yeah. elevator pitch, exactly. Well, you could just say that you play the piano. And if you don't want to talk too much, and, about yeah, it. and so, sometimes I definitely do. <laughs> but then, but then you're going to get the cab driver who's into music, and he's going to ask what you play, and then right, and and uh, yeah, most cab drivers, it turns out, are very into music, uh, and it's like what gets them through the day. Uh, right. So yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I do I do self describe as a classical musician, even though you know we know that term is is problematic. There's that that great art, Alex Ross article from, God, uh, probably 15 years ago. Now uh, that the opening line I think is I hate classical music, um, <laughs> and then he goes on to elaborate on why why he hates that term. Yeah. Um, and that was when I, you know, when I read that article when I was, uh, you know, pr probably 17 or 18, um, I was like, yeah, this guy really gets it. Like, th this is a, a problematic term and, and, and you kind of hate to say it, but it is the, the term of least resistance. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so to have this repository where you can just say, not even go to my website because people aren't going to go to your website. You just say, you know, search for me on YouTube or, or go to youtube.com slash timoandrus and they can just click on a video and see like, oh, okay, I, I, I get it. Is this something that you can use as a video CV for the future also? Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, you know, uh, presenters and audiences alike, I think now just gravitate to YouTube. Um, video content is kind of how they discover musicians, how they discover new music. And uh, so these are demo. These are like demos that like kind if, of, if yeah. I were in a blues band, this these would be my demo. And yeah. Uh, yeah, sort of, you know, behind the scenes, if I were to go to a presenter or if my manager were to go to a presenter and say, oh, you know, Timo has this recital with 
you know, Schubert and Anne Saltham and Philip Glass and, and so on and so forth. And here you, you can listen to, you know, excerpts of it on YouTube and they can go there and it's like a nice high quality production that, um, you know, I think once concerts resume will be a very useful thing to be able to do. Um, so, and not only that, but I've noticed, you know, with my students and, you know, when I uh, talk to universities, like YouTube is just how everyone discovers new music. And, and even like the, the, the most niche, like avant-garde stuff, um, there are uh, repositories of that on YouTube with like score follower videos and it's really, I mean, I'm, I use it now too. I like, I, I've been gravitating toward, toward YouTube, uh, for music discovery as well, because it's much better than Apple music. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't find new stuff on Apple music. You just sort of have to pinpoint, uh, what you want to listen to. And even that is sometimes really hard to find. Um, whereas YouTube's recommendation algorithm you know, say what you will about it, you know, turning people into into right wing nut jobs. Um, it can also be really useful for you know discovering some weird messian piece that you didn't know, or you know, it, it has its its uh, its great uh, uses as well. So I've got one of your videos open in my browser, and some of the recommendations are: How many spy cams can Spacey Dooley find in a love motel? Don't talk to the police. Why gravity is not a force. <laughs> wow, Kirk. Yeah. I, I mean, I think yeah. this says more, more about you than it does about me. <laughs> you know, the only things I watch on YouTube are camera and lens reviews, because they're often better in video form than in, in text. Oh, yeah. And music. That's about it. The occasional, I'll click through from Twitter, someone's got a video of, you know, a funny cat video or something like that. I am just not a YouTube user in general. I don't use it to browse for content. I don't, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, once you start, um, yeah, having, an, having a, an account that you use regularly, it gets pretty good. Um, I mean, I, I mainly use it, yeah, I, I do a lot of, uh, you know, camera gear, video gear, video software videos. Um, I do a lot of cooking videos. There are a lot of uh, yes, amazing I've cooking channels that, yeah. I, that I subscribe to. Um, and yeah, like uh, uh, both, both jazz and contemporary music videos. Um, I watch old Grateful Dead videos. I was watching yeah, Jeff exactly. Toe recently because we're planning an episode on Thick as a Brick. So I wanted to put on, I think it was a concert I actually saw at Radio City Music Hall. But for me, it's essentially music. So just to your videos, we talked to you about six months ago, and that was Tim O'Andres' early period of music videos. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, that's it right. was pretty simple. I, did, did you even have more than one camera angle in those videos? Back, there were a couple. There are a couple of the longer ones that I figured as, out as how to do that. As you moved on through the series, you added some more stuff. Yeah. But now, I, I, I haven't counted, but there are four or five or six camera angles sometimes. You've got zoom in and zoom out. You've got dissolves. What's your inspiration here? Bergman, Venders, Fassbender? <laughs> <laughs> or the Straub-Wie Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach with Gustav Leonhardt? <laughs> 
Um, uh, I, no, actually, more uh, Ken Russell movies, I would say. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm really just uh, trying to work within the constraints of uh, the space and the equipment that I have. Um, and you know, as you've as you've probably seen, my piano is kind of tucked into uh, you know one side of a, a fairly long rectangular room. Um, and so the piano nook. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's actually kind of tricky to get too many different angles here, um, with all the um, all the furniture and all the walls uh, surrounding me. Um, so I, yeah, I really like just trying to get uh, some sort of variety, um, just to just to sort of keep things going. Um, and I think. Uh, you know the the classical music films or or any sort of music film uh, that are good to watch are ones where you really have a sense of the the videographer uh, understanding the music. I have a I have a couple of questions about um, the Barker rolls that you did. I'd forgotten the the composer's name. Oh, the, uh, the Ned Roram. Right. Ned yeah. Roram. Um, yeah. I knew that Barker rolls were. It, it sounds great, by the way. I mean, it just sounds great. I knew that Barcarolles were um, Italian songs, and mm -hmm. in the video, you're wearing a white shirt with black stripes, which is very reminiscent <laughs> of of the <laughs> gondoliers that would have sung a Barcarolle. Now, did you do that on purpose, or is that just an accident? No, I've, it, I'm glad you picked up on that. That was definitely on purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what I was getting at is, like, with the visuals, it enables you to do have more uh, playtime. Like doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, even um, even in the back in the the Carnegie recital videos, uh, you know, I I put on my my blue collar duds for uh, for the Jevsky. Uh, you know, I had my cap on for the Steve Reich. So you know, right. I'm not I'm not above a little uh, subtle um, you know costume design. Well, it makes it, it makes it much more interesting. It makes it way more interesting. Actually. <laughs> It's also it is interesting also to be kind kind of like quote unquote performing, uh, but not not in a suit you know or not it's like it's not you're at home so it's you're like, at home exactly I'm not I'm not gonna go put on one of my suits just to play downstairs in the living room so uh, yeah it does get, give you a little more flexibility in terms of uh, what you want to wear and and of course it has to be comfortable because. I'm, you know, getting up and, and going behind the camera and like rearranging the chords and, and uh, all this stuff. So I also have to be dressed kind of like a like a stagehand in a way. Can I ask another technical question? Because this has kind of been bothering me. And I think Kirk knows what I'm going to ask. It's, I don't listen to a lot of piano music. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I do, I just throw it on and it, there it is. It sounds like the piano is there. But I noticed um, uh, recently that there seems to be a convention of anything... Um, west of middle c is on the left and anything east of middle c is on the right is that a convention that you've been following when you record in the room or are you trying to get the perspective of of for where the camera is or where the where i'm sorry where the person in the audience would be i'm i'm not actually i'm 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 not going for you know most classical recording is kind of um going after that like concert experience that that sort of idealized like oh you know sitting in the in in the audience uh in a good hall 
a little ways back and he hearing whatever you're hearing. Um, but I figure, you know, since it's, it's very clear I'm not in a hall, I don't have to do that. You know, it, and if, in fact, it would be kind of strange if it sounded like that. Um, what I'm trying to do is give the impression, basically to, to make it sound to you like it sounds to me when I'm playing. Um, or even, you know, better than that. Because I have, I have the freedom to, uh, you know, put, put the mics uh, wherever I want. You know, in, in this case, uh, I've, I've got them right inside the piano. So you're almost hearing something that's like better than, it, it, it almost sounds better than real life. Because you have, you have such a, um, you have such a, a level of detail uh, that uh, you, and, and then once you have that, um, that very clear, detailed, close, dry signal, then I can take it and, you know, produce it and, and actually like, you know, put some effects on it. Now, that's the other thing I wanted to get to is the effects, because the impression I had when watching these is that I was in a small... What's the hall that BBC uses? Oh, Wigmore. Wigmore Hall. Wigmore. Wigmore Hall. It's, it sounded a little smaller than that. That's, uh, that's what it sounds like I'm listening to. Not a chamber, but a fairly 300, maybe, Yeah, I mean, that's seat person. fantastic, actually. Uh, that's a fantastic compliment, because Wigmore is... is uh, well known to be a, an acoustically beautiful space and um, kind of a great space to listen to chamber music or recitals. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I've actually only performed in there once, um, but I've, I've been to a number of concerts there. And yeah, it is kind of one of my favorite little concert halls. Um, and they also, they do uh, very good streaming YouTube productions as well, they've, they've been doing lately. That's how I was aware of the sound, because I've, I've caught a couple of those. And, and when I listen to yeah. your thing, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like he's in that kind of room. So it was, that's obviously something you're going for. You don't want to make it sound like you're in your dining room. You want to make it sound like you're in some kind of performance space. Yes, and I, yeah, I definitely have, um, you know, the software gives you the power to make it sound like you're basically anywhere. I mean, I could make it sound like I'm in a, you know, a huge cathedral and you're, you know, 200 feet away from me. Um, or a sewer pipe. Yeah, exactly. Or, or yeah. Um, but I think that would feel very unrealistic if you heard that and then saw, saw me sitting in my living room. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I do, I do put, um, reverb on it cause you kind of have to, I mean, it, it it sounds kind of dead otherwise um but i do it depends on the music i'm recording what kind of level of reverb i i do or what kind of reverb um but i i think i do tend to be fairly sparing with it and uh, and i only notice that because then when i go back and listen to like uh, you know, a lot, a lot of like Deutsche Grammophon um, or or like Harmonia Mundi, like these these very sort of um, uh, good classical labels. It's like I feel like I'm a, a million miles away from the piano because they just mic everything so far back, and it's like, oh, I'm I'm just sitting in a concert hall now. Um, and then my, it, by comparison, mine sound very uh, kind of close and dry. So you're not applying the same reverb or other settings to everything you record then 
which I would think that if you're recording in the same space, you'd want to kind of use that as a preset to have the same sound. I've been, I, you know, I've been tempted to do that because it would save time in a certain way. Um, but I find that diff different music really requires different treatment. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, I agree with that. For, for example, um, I recorded a few months ago, I recorded a piece of mine called uh, How Can I Live in Your World of Ideas? Um, and that one, it c kind of starts out with this, uh, this very repetitive um, series of, uh, you know, eight or ten chords that just happen over and over. And each time it happens, it's, there's a little interruption in between re repetitions. And that interruption gets longer and longer and longer as the piece goes on, and eventually it takes over. And, uh, you know, the piece is in this new space. Um, so I, my production for that one uh, mirrors the form. So each time, each one of those interruptions, uh, it automates a switch to a different reverb. Um, and it, it, it sort of um, pulls you back. It pulls you uh, away from the piano and allows the piano to uh, reverberate for longer. Um, and that, so that was a very kind of um, a, a little bit more, more of a authorial use of, um, <laughs> of the production tool in that you look at the little line that automates the reverb and you can see the form of the piece. Um, so that that was and and also and then that's the, an interesting Easter egg. The and and the the cuts in the video do the same thing. I I cut the shot uh, at exactly those moments as well, um, with no fades or anything, just a jump cut. So you kind of get a sense. I'm I'm te I'm teaching you the form of the piece uh, along with the video. So you're creating your own little ear cam studio. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, the, all the but stuff I'm doing it, is pretty basic. I find it really basic. interesting because you, you've not only, so you, you're composing the music, you're playing your own music, and now you're finding that recording yourself and filming yourself gives you even more to do with the music, the kind of thing that you can't even do live. So you're you're stretching your role to be composer performer and producer at the same time that's right and it's it's it does feel like i'm you know presenting a little mini concert series in a way i mean that's how i look at it from sort of a programming perspective is like um you know so if i'm pairing two pieces for example if i'm doing say you know the the debussy and ellington video for example um, that is the kind of thing that I would want to present on a, on a live concert, just sort of miniaturized, you know, this is the sort of pair, because, uh, you know, part of the experience of going to a great classical music concert is the, the choice of repertoire and how the, how the pieces kind of talk to each other on the program. I, I think a lot of, uh, organizations forget that and certainly, a lot of major orchestras, if, if you regularly go to them, you don't, that's not something you'd really pick up on because they have a lot of different reasons for programming what they do. Um, but when I program a piano recital, 
that's the main thing that I'm trying to do, actually, is to say, you know, here's a new way to listen to Debussy or to Janacek or to um, Philip Glass or, or whatever it is. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that by telling you in words. I'm, I'm saying it by what other music I choose to surround it with and what sequence that goes in. And so that, you know, that's the art of programming a, a concert. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do in miniature on the YouTube series. And what's great is I don't have the pressure of selling tickets or that I don't have, uh, you know, any artistic planners <laughs> that I need to convince or that I that have to answer to. I just do it. And so that raises the question, what's the end game here? As long as you can't perform live, and I think we've still got a ways to go before that can happen. For sure. Are you going to refine this technique and eventually become sort of like the Glenn Gould of video and, and, and be more interested in the production, the video of making something fixed the way you want rather than performing live? Well, um, it's interesting you bring up Gould because, uh, you know, he... Everyone brings up Gould. Yeah. It fits uh, in every situation about music, especially if there's a piano involved. Uh, I, I have, a, uh, I have a, a photo of him right, right here next to the piano. Um, yep. He was uh, definitely a model uh, who, who was on my mind uh, from, the, from the very first. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, he was sort of, you know, one of the first musicians, not even just classical musicians, but one of the first musicians to kind of grasp the use of the studio as an artistic tool. Um, and I have to say that uh, classical music didn't really take him up on it that much. I mean, I, I feel as though, um, yeah, a lot of classical recording, as I said, is still just kind of in that you know, let's sit halfway back in the, in the audience and like get this concert experience type of thing, uh, which Gould was very much against. You know, he he was up there, you know, experimenting with um, all sorts of different effects and mic place like wild, just wild mic placement, and uh, you know, doing this sort of automation before it was automation, like it was actually like physical. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I've seen him cutting recording tape in in documentaries. Yeah, where he would actually, you know, splice, cut and splice. But the reason, and the reason, you you might say like, oh, this isn't true to the music, or this is, uh, you know, an over overreach or whatever. It's heavy handed. But he had such a such an understanding of the music and such such a unique understanding of it um, that yeah, it does become part of his interpretation. And I think that is what I've found so rewarding about the about doing it all myself is that, yeah, as you said, it, it does all become a, a facet of my interpretation of the music and a way in which I can kind of uh, say more about it. Let's talk technique a little bit. So you... Yeah. Are there as many as five or six different camera angles in some of these videos? And are you shooting are you, are you shooting a whole take with one angle, a whole take with another, a whole take with another, or do you have multiple cameras set up? Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, I only have one camera, and I, 
I think at the most I've only done four angles, maybe. Um, I, yeah, so I do um, one take per angle, and then uh, I'll usually do, you know, uh, some some audio plug, audio only plugs at the end, just in case there's anything I feel like I didn't cover. Um, and so, yeah, it is then a process of kind of matching up um, what's good in the audio to what's uh, kind of apropos in the video. Um, and I, it's nice when it works out that the good audio takes are work, work out with the, the shots I want or the angles I want, but it does not always. So. Um, Basically, the first step of the process is the audio, and I go yeah, through. Yeah, you you make you finalize the audio, and then you overlay the video to that. You're yeah, not, I go through. You have I, to um, you have to match it perfectly for your finger movements. Yes, so I go through and I I I mark in the score. You know what takes were good, what takes were bad. I make a, a cut of the audio, um, and. Yeah, then I, I sort of have an idea of like, okay, so mo it was mostly this take that I ended up using. It, usually, it ends up most of the time being the later takes that that you want to use. Um, so usually I'll start my edit just by put, putting in a whole take and, and like splicing in little things from, from other takes. Um, and... Yes, then when we go from Logic into DaVinci Resolve, then it begins the, the retiming process. So um, often, yeah, I'll have to do a little, uh, a, a little matching. So especially in the shots that are close-ups of the hands, uh, it becomes very clear. There's this sort of uncanny <laughs> feeling you get. It goes very clear when they're not in sync. Um, and so, you can do various things with uh, speed points and uh, speed ramps and, and retime. There are various retiming algorithms for the video that are, if you tried to do the same thing in the audio, it would sound like total crap, you know. But usually, unless you have a very trained eye um, with the video stuff, you can't really notice. There, um, their retiming algorithms are actually uh, incredible. Um, if you if you crank it all the way up, kind of to the the like highest quality setting, unfortunately, then it takes my five year old iMac like twelve yeah. hours to <laughs> to rent, render out the video. So um, I usually don't I, I usually don't have to do it. Uh, basically, if I. If I have to if I have to patch it up too much, then I, I'll usually go back and say like, oh, is there another take I can use? I think you can take advantage of one of the things that you, the human brain will look at those pictures and won't detect any anomalies because you know if you get it close enough. I didn't I didn't see any mistakes. Exactly. I, always, yeah. I thought it was a live three camera thing. So right, and that's, that's you've evidently I mean. nailed that. That's the effect that I'm trying to go for, and. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, even if I did have multiple cameras, it's like my space is so small that they'd constantly be in each other's shots, and like, I, I don't, I just don't think it would be worth it. 
Um, But that's the next level, figuring out how to do that so they're not in each other's shots. Well, I think what I really need is uh, is like I I need one of those classic like Brooklyn loft spaces that's just like an (laughs) open room with like tons of windows and I can just surround the piano with, uh, you know, as many cameras as I want. It would look cool to see the the cameras. But you wouldn't have the same sound. That's true. I I would not. And, And I have to say. You know, I haven't done really any acoustic treatment to my space. Um, Which is surprising. That's very surprising yeah. to me. Yeah. It's, um, I think I just have it, like, I I have rugs, I have curtains all along one wall just for light. I have, you know, soft furniture. So, I, But you've yeah, got a whole wall of got a whole wall of shiny uh, framed photographs and pictures and things like that. I mean... That's true, but that's only only here, only in only in the piano corner, and the rest of the room has you know couches and rugs and pillows oh, and cur- curtains and. Well, you're recording with the mics relatively close to the piano anyway. Inside, yeah, um, right. You can inside. see it in some of the videos, yeah. So you're not getting too much of the room on the original recording. No, and and uh, you know, there's no room that I would want to get. There's no, there's no <laughs> yeah. natural, no natural acoustic in here that's worth picking up. So, I might as well get. As you said before, you're processing it afterwards. You want it as dry as possible, so you can then right. apply whatever you want to it. I want it as clean and dry as possible, and um, it, you know, it helps with the bass response a lot. I found um, to get these mics up close. Actually, that's one thing we should talk about. Is um, I did. Uh, do a huge audio equipment upgrade uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, because so when you started, you just had a single microphone, and I see now you've got two. No, I had um, I had a pair. I always had a stereo pair, um, but they were I w- I was using them more as a um, like a, a a little ORTF pair, so like right together, just you know, yeah, at an angle. Um, and that's what I had found worked best with those particular microphones, which were Rode mics, you know, very, very standard, affordable, inexpensive, um, but, you know, decent condenser mics. But I found that if I got too close to the piano with those, it would start to sound really harsh and just kind of, kind of ugly. Um, whereas... So now what are you using? So I, uh, I upgraded to a pair of, uh, actually ribbon microphones, um, this was at, at the advice of um, a great uh, producer engineer I've worked with before named uh, Adam Abe's house, who's a, a, a classical recording engineer. Um, he likes ribbon mics for the piano because they do, they're, they're not maybe as uh, quote unquote faithful as uh, your standard condenser mics, but they do have this, this warmth, this presence to them um that is that we find very pleasing as humans so what so what's interesting is adam abe's house is the same person who produced simona dinnerstein's album that she recorded in her are you kidding me there you go no wow what do you know that's very interesting six degrees of separation oh my god how many degrees are you away from glenn gould (laughs) hey i could be one two i'm three degrees from glenn gould one of my nice. best friends when I was a teenager was the daughter of Andrew Kasdan, who was his record producer. There you go. And I wish I knew about his music back then. I mean, 
really the the opportunity <laughs> anyway let's not let's not regret the past so yes this is the same person who's already recorded um an album with someone else in the same borough of new york in a similar situation um, adams yeah I, well adam's been uh very proactive about doing acting as a sort of remote producer uh lately um I know he all he also produced something for Enon Barnaton recently that he, was actually by coastal like Enon was recording on the west coast and and uh, Adam was producing from his home studio and cool. in, uh, in that New is York. so cool that is just the coolest thing yeah <laughs> um, so so Ad, I had a chat with and Adam also produced um, the the I still play record uh, that came right. out a few months ago on Nonsuch. One thing I notice in one of the videos is that you're you've got one of the microphones closer to the piano, so the one down, as uh, Doug would say, west of uh, middle C, down for the bass. Yeah. Does it need to be closer to pick up the bass more correctly? That's sort of what I found. I mean, I think uh, if I were a professional, I would um, I'd probably take the lid of the piano entirely off. Um, and then I would have the freedom to kind of move the mics around uh, really wherever I wanted. As it is, it's like they're they're pretty big microphones. Um, yeah. So I and they're, they're tall microphones. Well, beca because because they're, of the they're way, long. Yeah, because of the way they're designed, uh, they have this big um, like all the electronics of the microphone are in this big canister. Yeah, and then. Um, you address they they're addressable from both sides so it's basically a um it's a figure eight pattern so what you you can get sound from one side and you get equal amount of sound from the other side but then in between there are these two poles where no there you get no response um and so i had to figure out a way to work around that so pick and and that Basically, what I want to do is pick up the vibration of the whole bass string, the whole length of right. it. And so, ah, so you've got the figure eight going along the string, exactly, instead of uh, instead of across, exactly. And then with the treble, um, yeah, I found that um, just just for balance' sake, I I was usually EQing the treble down a little in my post production. Um, so I figured, uh, you know, why not just start with it a little further away and it give give it a little bit more of a a mellow sound and let less. My my piano is, you know, it's it's an old piano. Um, it has a lot of little quirky mechanical noises and little little clicks and and things in it, which I'm constantly working with my technician to get rid of. But they always sort of come back in one form or another. So um, it also helps with that, and uh, and and noise removal is also a, um, a a side of production that I've been getting into uh, pretty heavily. But if the treble mic is further away, that means it gets the musical sound a little bit later, a couple milliseconds later. You know, I suppose it does, but it hasn't. Uh, it's not something that I notice. I mean, it's really. Narrator. Timo is looking at the microphones now because he's sitting at his piano. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to judge, like, what it's, you know, it's the bass mic is probably, you know, six inches from the strings, and then the treble mic is probably a, a foot or ten inches from the strings. It's not a huge difference. 
Yeah, I, I would think the lower sound wouldn't travel as far as the upper sounds anyway. So I wonder about I, I'm not an acoustician, um, but I... You can't be everything. Yeah. I think it's also just... Um, <laughs> you can't, you, don't you know, tell I'm, try, I'm trying to make my piano sound like a, like a concert-sized instrument. It's, it's not. It's about six foot five. Um, but... The thing that you miss with the the concert grand is really the bass, um, those long, long bass strings, and so I yeah, a lot of what I've done is just sort of everything I can do to to give it that deep, rich bass, which is something that I was always frustrated on with my old mics didn't sound like I wanted, and the instant I I plugged in these new ones with the I also got some nice preamps to plug them into. It was I like I, I had that kind of like jaw on the floor moment where I was just like, oh my god, this sounds so much. This is an, a, a, another. It, it's level. what you were, had been looking for. It really was, and and it was uh, it was just such a such a great moment to plug it in and just instantly hear that um, that transformation. Because now to me it sounds. It sounds like it does sitting at the piano, yeah. or even better, because yeah. I'm my. It's like putting my head right inside the instrument. Okay, what about camera? What are you using? I remember going back six months. You were trying to just. You started with an iPhone, and then you were trying to decide which camera to buy after that. I yeah. So for a few months after the Carnegie videos, I, I borrowed a camera from a friend of mine, um, which is a, a little Sony. RX 107, which is a tiny, kind of a beautiful little camera. It's like real minuscule palm-sized camera, but very powerful and actually rather expensive. Um, and that shoots 4K video and you know does a lot of other stuff. I so I used that from like May through July, probably. Um, and learned a lot about uh, video editing during that time. Um, learned a lot about color correction and all sorts of stuff. Uh, in the end, it seemed uh, a little bit like the wrong tool for the job. I mean, it's really a camera that's made for uh, portability and travel and like vlogging, I guess. Um, so, you know, to, to keep it on, on a tripod in my living room seemed to be like misusing it a little bit. It also just like, because it's so tiny, it does not have a big sensor. And so with the amount of light that I was able to get in here, it was getting pretty noisy. And, um, you know, I, it just, it, it wasn't taking beautiful shots and it didn't have interchangeable lenses. It had this incredibly long zoom lens, which I found very difficult to use. Um, yeah, they call those cameras travel zooms. Yeah, uh, I mean, as you really, said, the, for traveling, you've got a long zoom. It's good quality, but once you yeah. start zooming too much, then and it it's actually not great. it takes um, it takes beautiful still pictures. Yeah, um, like just incredible. Um, but I was clearly this is clearly not exactly what I needed. So I ended up getting a uh, Blackmagic, a 4K uh, wow. pocket pocket camera. Um, which is it's it's a very interesting camera. I mean, Blackmagic uh, is a is a company that I 
I sort of fell into because I was I was using like the free version of DaVinci Resolve, which is also their their product. Um, and just getting really into that program. And so it's, it's almost like Apple. It's like they've got this whole ecosystem of hardware and software that can just carry you through the whole process of, of video making. Um, and so I thought, you know, why not just get their, their very sort of base model professional cinema camera seems like what I need. I mean, it's kind of a big, chunky, ugly thing but it's just living on a tr on a tripod um, in my living room, and it has so many connectors. You know, it, it's got like a whole side of full size connectors. It has interchangeable lenses, uh, micro four thirds lenses. It's got um, you know a huge sensor that uh, dual ISO, so it, it can take in a lot of light. Um, and it can shoot uh, Blackmagic RAW, which is their proprietary RAW video format, um, which even at its lowest bitrate, which is what I use, is like insanely high quality um, and, and allows you to um, do all that just as you would do for photos. Uh, you, can, you can have so much flexibility editing the RAW video footage. So even if it what what comes out of the camera is kind of like dark and 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 like murky and ungraded looking um but you can just run it through these these very uh very easy like color correction algorithms and uh you know bump up the iso bump up the contrast and it's still like usually a beautiful noise free shot um, and you can get, because it's a big sensor and I can uh, put different lenses on it, you can get that beautiful depth of field uh, with the blurry background that everyone likes to look at. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've, I've found it to be really great. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a very uh, dumb camera in a lot of ways. Like, it, it barely autofocuses. Like, it, it's, it's very manual, uh, which I actually like. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's been a really great thing. And 4K, you know, it, uh, is, I don't know, I guess YouTube does more than that now, but, like, I don't think anyone oh, uses it. Oh, I don't think it. they do, I, I don't think they do 8K or anything. I think 4K is the limit. No, um, I, w I it, watched an 8K YouTube the other day, actually, and really? uh, it, it slowed my computer to a crawl. I mean, it, it really... Yeah, might... it's, it's probably <laughs> limited to certain accounts just to test it. Yeah. Because the bandwidth you need... I, for 4K, you generally need about 25 megabits per second. For 8K, it's more than twice that. I, I think this whole 8... It's like, okay, we got 4K. We can't see the difference when we're looking at a TV at a normal distance. We're not going to see it at 8K. I have to say, though, I could. I, could. I mean, I, if... I, I looked at this, um, I think it was uh, MKBHD, if you know his channel. Um, he's like a tech blogger. Um, he published it in 8K video, and I, I did comparisons. I put it in 4K and 8K, it, and actually the difference was very noticeable. Unfortunately, as soon as I hit play, it would just like stutter and lag, and my my, my poor iMac couldn't even decode it. But if you're watching um, that close to the screen, you could see the difference. If you're sitting and watching a movie on a TV at the normal distance, most people can't see the difference between 1080p and 4K. 
And, and this is just, 8K is just the TV industry thinking, okay, we've convinced them all to buy 4K TVs, and now they're not going to upgrade for a long time, and we'll see come out with something <laughs> better. And I, yeah, I mean, I think uh, probably HDR is the bigger difference yeah. than like 4K and 8K. I mean, eventually we'll get there. I mean, it's all, it always uh, levels up eventually. I mean, probably 10 years ago, we would have said 4K, who needs that? They got not even enough pixels on the screen. Um, but that said, I, I notice a huge difference between HD and 4K. And um, I really, I think it's just, you know, it's kind of future-proofing in a way uh, to just shoot everything at 4K. And it also allows you to be able to do those fake panning shots, the the, the um, zoom in and out. The Ken Burns effect. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, because I don't have a camera guy moving around, um, it just can it, can, it can give it a little more of a, a dynamic feeling sometimes. So with all this hardware you've upgraded, you've still got a five-year-old iMac. <laughs> Come on, that's got to be the next that's purchase. Yeah, well, I trust me. I I, I seriously considered, uh, yeah, one of the new ones that came out over the summer. Um, but I'm I'm waiting for that Apple Silicon. Um, you know, I and this this one actually, I have to say, is a wonderful machine and has served me very well up right up until I started doing this, uh, you know, intensive video stuff. Um, and even then, it's like, okay, I just, I won't do the fancy noise reduction and, you know, frame interpolation. And then, uh, yeah, when I get the, the new fancy one, then I'll be able to do that stuff. <laughs> so do you have, so for now, this is all going on YouTube, but do you have any plans to like, I don't know, make a, a album in air quotes? Uh, what would you even call a video album like this? Do you have any plans to release a uh a program of rather than going on YouTube and having, you know, recommendations in the sidebar. I, I mean, I think that is sort of the end goal, um, either to, um, you know, record entire recital programs here for, um, presenters while the lockdown continues. I mean, uh, it, it hasn't happened yet, but I we're working on it sort of, uh, you know, sell, selling this idea to presenters um, who would then, you know, own the rights to, to stream the, the, the whole thing. Um, or, yeah, or recording a, a, a real album, uh, which, you know, I think uh, I, I certainly have um, the gear to do it now. Um, whether or not I'd want to produce it myself, I'm not sure in that case, but I think it's it's definitely a possibility. I love the idea of recording an album at home on my own piano, which is something, you know, I've always sort of thought like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be able to bring my piano into a recording studio and, and record? And now I've done the opposite. I've brought the studio to the piano. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, we're, to, we're tossing some ideas around. I mean, nothing, uh, nothing no firm plans as of yet, but... Um, that that is uh, certainly a, a possibility. So I guess among your peers, you're the guy who everyone goes to when they have questions about this stuff now, right? Not even. I mean, actually, yeah, a lot of people have been asking me, but I also have been asking a lot of other people because I, 
you know, I don't necessarily have uh, the background in uh, in music production, even of some of my composer peers, like people who uh, write more music having electronic components, uh, things like that. Um, so I'm also very much uh, learning about this stuff as I go. Um, and I feel like, you know, I've learned a lot about recording solo piano in my own house, but I, <laughs> I don't know if I could necessarily take those skills to uh, even, for example, like recording a string quartet. Like, I don't know if, I don't know how well those skills would apply. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't think I'm like putting any, uh, any recording engineers out of a job anytime soon. But uh, no, no, no. I was thinking other people in your position who are musicians, young composers, etc., who want to, who who see what you're doing and want to be able to do it themselves. Yeah, no, I definitely have gotten a lot of questions and a lot of interest about that. Um, and yeah, I would say, uh, you know, I I think how how I started out was uh, was fine. I mean, iPhones are incredible tools now. I mean, the, the new ones uh, just came out, look even better. Um, yeah, I can record in Dolby Vision. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who, and who doesn't want that? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, a, it's an amazing uh, gateway. I mean, I just think about, like, wow, if I'd, if I'd had an iPhone as a kid, growing up you know be on tiktok right I now i would like how, how much of a yeah how much of a head start i would have had or just think stuff. just think if you had a music streaming service as a kid oh i know i mean it's it's just insane to think about um it it really is but you know i'd say start it's it's uh you know start cheap and uh you know you can buy incredible recording equipment for you know, hun just hundreds of dollars now. Um, yes. Also, imagine if we had um, MacBook Pros when we were kids playing in a garage band and able to multi-track stuff. I had a friend who had a multi-track, and it was it was he was the most popular kid we knew because he had a <laughs> TAC four track. That's amazing. I mean, um, I, well, Kirk, as you know, I, I actually did grow up surrounded by technology in a way because yeah. of my dad's uh, my dad's line of work. Um, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I do think uh, in retrospect that that was, uh, you know, that was an incredible thing, you know. Even and you also learned HTML when you were a teenager, right? And so mm -hmm. that doing that at the same time that you were learning music gave you these two very different skill sets that you're bringing together now. Well, you know, people always talk about like uh, DIY self-sufficiency. You know, uh, the entrepreneurial. Uh, being an entrepreneur has become a big buzzword in music education since I was in school. Um, and you know, I th I think in a way that's what this is is, is a kind of like um, yeah, self-sufficiency in a way. And and again, it's not like I'm I'm putting actual recording engineers or actual web designers out of a job but i've always liked this idea of being able to do something myself in exactly the way that i want like i and i i just i just get my skills up to the level that i'm able to do basically what i what i want to do 
myself and I, you know, that extends to being self-published, you know, as a composer. Um, I, I'm right, able you to... sell scores of your music on your website as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. And um, I don't know, I, I think it's, it's not that I don't want to rely on others, because I do, there are, you know, many people in my professional life who, uh, with, without whose help, I, 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 I would be lost, but... Um, the cobbler who works out of his cottage relies on the tanner to provide him the leather and, <laughs> yeah, and exactly. the, the blacksmith to provide him nails. And that's, you're just the cobbler. You're, you're just a simple exactly. cobbler on the road to, you know. But you, I, I think but the point I'm trying to make is that you were saying that you're not going to put anybody out of a job, but yet you're creating a new profession. And that's the, the cottage industrialist composer here. The, I, yeah, I mean... Um, well, I, I, another figure who's been uh, a big inspiration to me is Philip Glass, who I think um, you could say very much worked that way, start, and, and to a certain extent continues to. I mean, he's a, a very, he's, he's been a very DIY uh, kind of music factory in a way so from the very beginning. I mean, at all stages of the production process from, you know, from, from writing the music to publishing it to, you know, he even used to own a wonderful recording studio um, here in New York. Um, so yeah, that, that idea of self-sufficiency and not even just self-sufficiency, it's like, it's when, owning the means of production. Exactly. And, and <laughs> yeah. when you, when you get yeah. to, uh, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm nowhere near this, but like when you do get to someone like Philip's level, then you are able to help so many other people. And, you know, he, you know, so many people owe Philip their health insurance at this point. It's like, it's, an, it's an inspiring thing. Um, but what I find really fascinating is that you're at the cusp of something new here. From composing to performing for live audiences, now you're doing the video recordings of it as well. I think in six months you're going to start going into maybe interspersing other video, other visuals in addition to you performing, maybe animate, maybe use some of those filters to make you look like an oil painting without it being tacky. But I, I mean, I kind of think that you haven't reached the end of the road here and you're going to keep going forward to try and create something that is... The, you know the Wagnerian total art thing. Yeah, but you also don't want to make you want, you don't want to reinvent the music video. You don't want to do that either. No, I mean I don't know if I want to go into making music videos per se. The the thought had occurred to me. Um, I actually have um, uh, I have a an unreleased piece of music uh, that was actually recorded a few years ago that I want to put out on YouTube, um, and I kind of. Yeah, I was kind of thinking like, well, I could just do like a score follower video with the score flipping by, um, but it I could also you know maybe do something a little more interesting than that. I don't know. I I will probably just do a score follower, but um, yeah, the idea had occurred to me. Uh, you know, I I can't. I do have this nice camera that uh, I can. Uh, take off the tripod, uh, even though the battery probably only lasts for 45 minutes. But um, yeah, never say never. You can never. plug it in, can't you? Well, but if I... You can plug it into and power. And I, I do, but um, if I were to take it out 
out on the road, for example, and like shoot. Oh, I see. Actually, yeah. shoot some footage. You just bring extra batteries. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what people who shoot a lot of video do. They get a dozen batteries. They charge them all up in these big chargers. Yeah. No, I, I have uh, I have spare batteries and and spare uh, you know uh, uh, SD cards, but. Um, or even just one of those big battery packs, just, you know, plug a USB cable. I think he just doesn't want to go outside. Yeah, they, they, yeah. that's the, that's <laughs> the problem. Um, actually part of this, uh, this, this, uh, black magic cinema camera universe is people building out these rigs from their, their little pocket cameras. And the rigs can end up being, you know, like more than twice the size of the camera itself with all the, the uh, frames and the... With the microphones and the, the, yeah. the screen to view. And I, yeah. I also bought a... Um, I have a... You can even make a steady cam. I have an external monitor uh, that plugs in so that I Because the, the Blackmagic doesn't have a flip-out screen. Um, yeah. So I have an external monitor that I can look at to, to do my my focus, get my focus and, uh, you know, see if I'm exposed, uh, properly. And, um, and I can control the whole thing from my iPhone. I can, I can, you know, change all the settings on the camera. There's a great app. Um, so it's this whole, whole software ecosystem that is really, uh, it's actually amazingly, um, well-designed and, and even though it is like, "Quote unquote professional." It's I found it to be very user friendly, um, much like Logic or you know Apple's better better software. Um, I uh, yeah I, I, I really can't say enough good things about it. Um, if if you want to get a little bit nerdy about it, I, I definitely recommend the the, the Black Magic. This episode of The Next Track has been brought to you by Blackmagic, Apple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all these people should obviously sponsor me. Yes, uh, I don't know yes how to, they should, how to get but it. you should contact the Blackmagic people. They would at least, <laughs> no, they would at least highlight you someplace. Show them, send them an email, tell them what you're doing. Wait till this podcast comes out, send them a link so they'll hear you describe it. No, seriously, that would get you some interesting exposure. I wonder, I wonder, yeah. Okay. You just mentioned a score follow video, and I'm going to link uh, in the show notes to one of those. If anyone doesn't know what it is, it's basically, it's just the pages of the score that change as you go through the score. Unfortunately, you don't have that bit where you're highlighting the section that you're playing or the little bouncing ball. So... Well, I actually figured out how to do. Um, uh -huh. I don't know if you saw these uh, these videos that Nonesuch put out uh, for the I Still Play uh, album. They have my hands. You have the top down view of my hands. Oh yes, 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 yes. On the keyboard, and then you have the score above with the cursor that the sort of glowing cursor that follows along. I figured out how to recreate that uh, in in DaVinci Resolve. So. I I might do that for um, for an upcoming video that I'm planning. I don't because I I made a transcription of um, Stravinsky Symphony of Wind Instruments for solo piano. Um, that's the thing. That's probably going to be my next uh, major video project is recording that. And because it's my own transcription, which I think might be interesting to see. I was considering maybe doing some sort of combination uh, hands and score follower for that. Uh, we'll see. Some years ago when the iPad came out, there were some apps that did that. 
that focused on certain pieces of music and had the score that highlighted as it went along and showed the hands, different angles. I don't remember which works they did, but there were a handful of them. It's a company in London that used to do that. Oh, yeah. And they, they also did like an orchestra thing with uh, Esapekka Salonen, I think. Yeah, they did the thing about the planets. Um, right. And they did some... They Are they the ones that did On the Road as well, Kerouac's On the Road? So they've done a number of these multimedia things, and there's always a way of following what's going on. So that's your next project. Yeah, I mean, I think those I think those things are so great, and, and so, um, it's yeah, it's a, it's a great way to discover music. I mean, even if you're not like me and you kind of, like, live in, in music notation, uh, I think it can just be interesting to see it going by and, and, you know, see how it translates to sound. Okay, Timo Andrus, thanks for joining us. This has been really exciting. I look forward to talking to you again next year to see what's, what you're doing different. Absolutely. Yeah, well, let's, let's check in. Uh, I'll put it in the calendar. Okay, thanks. Pleasure to talk to you. We don't have ads in this podcast, you've probably noticed, because, well, frankly, while the sponsors that we have had in the past were great, it is really a hassle trying to manage all that, when what we'd really rather be doing is recording our conversations and interviews. Producing this podcast isn't like staging an opera or anything, but there are expenses, and that's why we ask you to help us out by becoming a very special Next Track podcast patron through Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash the next track. And pitch in a few dollars for us every month. We appreciate it, and I'm imagining so do other listeners. Patreon.com slash the next track. Now we will proceed with our next track picks. Kirk? Okay, my next track pick has nothing to do with anything we just discussed, but it's something that I've been listening to this weekend, and I thought I would share it. I'm a big fan of John Dowland. He was a British composer, English Renaissance. He wrote a lot of lute music, but he also wrote some ensemble music, keyboard music, etc., there are about five hours of solo lute compositions by John Dowland, and I've been listening this weekend to recordings on the French label Harmonia Mundi of his complete lute works by Paul Odette. These were released in the 1990s, between 1995 and 1997, and I, it, it's got a wonderful warm sound. It's just, I love this music. I made a playlist on Apple Music, and I'll link to that in the show notes, and I just put it on shuffle, because you don't have to listen to these pieces in order. There are some pieces that are grouped together. There's one set of pieces around the song Lacrimé that he wrote, which is probably one of the earliest big hit songs of the Renaissance. But other than that, they're all individual pieces, often dedicated to specific people. In another life, I wanted to learn how to play this on classical guitar particularly Dowland, but also other music from the period, I wasn't successful, so I just listened to the records. So this is John Dowland's Complete Music by Paul Odette. Doug, what have you got? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to see if I can explain this. I had one of those, one of those revelations with this particular record I'm going to be listening to. I was aware for a really long time of a song called Whack Whack. Uh, it was recorded in the 60s. It's a soul sort of instrumental. It's, kind of, it's a cool song. And it was by uh, a, a group, I thought, called Young Holt Unlimited. I had no idea what that those phrases, I, Young Holt Unlimited. I don't know what it is. But anyway, the song comes on um, uh, Radio France, which we listen to here frequently. And so whack, whacks on. I go, oh, yeah, that Young Holt Unlimited. I wonder if whatever that is is available on Apple Music. And I go, and I, the first thing that comes up is the definitive Young Holt Unlimited. Well, Young Holt apparently is two guys, which I did not know. 
And um, I'm looking at the, the the songs that they perform, and one of the songs that they perform is something called Soulful Strut, which is also a song I know, but I didn't know that they did it. I had no idea. So I listened to Soulful Strut, and it's the Soulful Strut, which is another famous instrumental in the vein of Ramsey Lewis and that sort of thing. It's actually the instrumental part to a hit song called Am I the Same Girl, which was recorded by Barbara Acklin. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on here. It turns out that Young and Holt are the are L.D. Young and Red Holt, the bass player and drummer who used to play with Ramsey Lewis. And in fact, if you know the Ramsey Lewis song, The In Crowd, those are the guys that are backing up Ramsey Lewis, who is a piano player, in case you didn't know. So anyway, I've discovered this great mid-60s soul funk record. It's not exactly you know super super funk and it's not exactly super soul it's just this that ramsey lewis sort of kind of cool funk soulful thing and here and another thing i learned is that young and holt are two guys who did whack whack so that's what i'm going to be listening to more of this good stuff the definitive young holt unlimited by young holt unlimited This was episode number 195 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.